Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. So hello and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and today I am really excited because this is a really interesting episode. So I have Dr. Ruth Ann Harper with me today and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. It's a real, it's a lot of fun actually to come on a podcast like this and get to have this kind of conversation. So my name is Ruth Ann. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been qualified clinical psychologist well, since 2009, so however long that is. And I started mostly working in the NHS, doing lots of work with complex trauma. Then as I went into private practice, I had a daughter and went into private practice after I had her and was just kind of doing this really interesting mix of work where I was working with some people. I work in central London, so that's a kind of particular demographic. And I was working with some people who had these big personalities Mm -hmm. who were quite demanding who um, were challenging to work with, very, very successful people. And kind of some of them, and some of them would say this themselves, would really see themselves as a bit narcissistic. They'd say, I think I'm a bit narcissistic, you know, like, you know, I think, I think well of myself. I think very well of myself. And I do think everyone else is, yeah, a bit beneath me. And the, they were quite honest about it. And some of them were functioning well in lots and lots of ways. And some of them were struggling with their relationships. So I was doing that kind of work. And then I was also working with some people who'd been in relationships with people who were extremely abusive, who were doing all of the kind of classic behaviors that you can if you read about narcissism in the media, all of the stuff that you hear about, the the gaslighting, I can define that if you like, the lying, the cheating, I mean, outrageous levels of abuse. And they've been through those kinds of relationships. So I was working with some of them. And so what I ended up doing is I actually approached Wendy Berry, who I have long admired at the start of the pandemic. And I was like, I don't know if Wendy will want to work with someone like me, but she was absolutely up for it. And so I've had a lot of kind of training and mentoring from her, which has just been a lot of fun and just so enjoyable. So I've kind of niched into this area in a, in a way that wasn't necessarily intentional at the beginning. So I followed you avidly on social media. Um, I love the way that you present information to people, help make it accessible. And one of the reasons for having you on the podcast today is, um, we were actually talking about this before, weren't we, is that I seem to find I am noticing more people talking about this term narcissism, talking about it particularly in the context of relationships as well. So I thought, right, I know who I need on. (laughs) Kind of helping deconstruct this term narcissism, perhaps where it came from. And then moving on a little bit in terms of what does it look like? And maybe more specifically in the context of relationships, as you say, that toxicity, gaslighting. So quite a lot. We could almost probably do a few podcast episodes, couldn't we? But it's helping to maybe identify this, how it translates in perhaps everyday behaviours. Okay, so if we could talk about this for hours. Um, So the term narcissism comes from a Greek myth. So it's the myth, and it's actually an interesting myth. It is not the myth of Narcissus. It's the myth of Echo and Narcissus. 
And if you, there's a real quintessential picture of Echo and Narcissus where Narcissus is staring at the water at his own reflection. Everyone can remember it. And right next to him is a woman who's gazing at him. She's got a breast hanging out and somehow no one's noticed her. And I can send you the picture if you want. But so Narcissus, he was... He was born very physically attractive, very beautiful. His parents were worried and they sought advice. And they were advised that he should never know himself. He should never see himself. And then he would have a long life. And so they never let him see his own reflection. And then, of course, he does come across his own reflection in some in a pool of water. And he falls in love with it. And the kind of the myth of Narcissus is like he's he doesn't know himself. A lot of people think he fall, he's fallen in love with himself. He hasn't. He's fallen in love with an image of himself and a certain idea about himself. But he can never actually grasp the image because it's it's just a reflection. So as soon as he tries to touch it, scatters. So, and, and he, you know, lots of people fall in love with him and he rejects them all. And ultimately he falls into the pool, dies, and he springs up as the Narcissus flower, which you probably know as the daffodil. Yeah. So that's the story. That's where it's come from. And in the myth, there's a nymph called Echo, whose story I think is very compelling. She is, she's full of life. She's full of energy. And her and her friends like to party with the gods and they party with Zeus. And her friends are having a great time with Zeus. Zeus's wife Hera comes to earth to see what Zeus is up to. Echo intercepts and distracts her by talking. And Hera realises what Echo's doing, curses her, takes away her voice so she can't speak for herself and she can only speak the last words that someone else has said. So when she falls in love with Narcissus, all she can do is repeat what Narcissus is saying. So she has no ability to connect with herself. And I think there's something really interesting in that kind of myth and the relationship and what it has, what it kind of tells us about human nature. And this is an ancient Greek myth, which tells me that this dynamic is not unique to the 21st century and social media. Yeah. This has always been there. It's a part of us. So that's where that's where the term comes from. And there's lots of early kind of not early, but psychodynamic writing, psychoanalytic writings, where they borrowed the the story of narcissus and started to refer to narcissism. And narcissism is I see it as the ordinary human desire to be seen as special and to be seen as good and to be treated accordingly, to be a little bit centered occasionally. And it's a kind of normal part of human development. It's normal for children to be, to see themselves as the center of the world and expect the world to revolve around them. And all of us have a natural need to be special. And there is some really interesting kind of history of this, where psychodynamic thinking kind of went off in two directions. And one of the most influential people was Otto Kernberg. And he grew up in, during the Second World War as a Jew. And he began to frame kind of narcissism as really related to Hitler in the Third Reich. So it was kind of seen as evil, bad, aggressive, overpowering behavior. But some of the early thinking didn't necessarily go along that way was much more just a normal and natural part of us. 
And the way I would see it, and I think also the way the research would kind of support, is that narcissism exists on a spectrum. There's a really interesting psychologist called Craig Mulkin. I really like it. I interact with him on Twitter, so he may may hear this. I may send this to him. And what Craig outlines in his book, Rethinking Narcissism, which is an amazing book, is he narcissism as a spectrum. And right in the middle of that spectrum is healthy narcissism. So if you have healthy narcissism, you see yourself as special. You may even see yourselves, you may even see yourself as a little more capable than you actually are. You have rose tinted glasses. And I was thinking about what we also said before about when you're really perfectionistic, and you don't think you're good enough and you hold yourself back and you don't put yourself out there. So many people are kind of held back by that. But if you have a little bit of healthy narcissism, then you're like, well, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I like what I do. Maybe you're a little overly positive, but that actually gives you a lot of strength. It gives you a lot of motivation. It gives you a lot of drive. It gives you the anticipation of success entrepreneurs, no one would become an entrepreneur if they didn't have some level of healthy narcissism or maybe some level of unhealthy narcissism, but if they didn't have it, they wouldn't do anything. So it's that kind of drive. But what makes it healthy narcissism is those people are not crushed by feedback. If someone comes along and says, actually, I think you could do this better, or this doesn't quite work, they they can take that on board and they can evaluate, is this fair criticism? They can take it on board without being crushed by it and without their fundamental sense of themselves being completely destroyed. Whereas in pathological narcissism, where it gets really high and right at the very extreme end of pathological narcissism might be narcissistic personality disorder, which is a disorder of narcissism. So narcissism itself isn't a disorder. It's just a character trait or a particular pattern of human behavior. So the extreme end of narcissism is someone who you don't have rose tinted glasses anymore. You just don't see clearly at all. You don't see yourself for who you are. And that's often thought of as being related to deep rooted shame. That the only way I can be acceptable and loved and a valuable person is to be extraordinary in some ways. So whether that is, I've got to be extraordinarily wealthy got to be extraordinarily good looking I've got to be extraordinarily successful in my career um, but it can also be and there's another form of narcissism and this is also something that's coming into vogue which and I think is going to be really interesting to see where the kind of cultural language goes about this so we're kind of the classic narcissism we think of is grandiose narcissism I'm special it's the person with a lot of swagger the person who's quite successful who's wealthy good looking attractive you know what I mean? That's the one we all know. But the the other there's another type called more vulnerable narcissism. And vulnerable narcissism, or sometimes called covert narcissism, what they want to be is they want to be the most extraordinary, the most extraordinary victim. Right. I'm the one who suffered the most. I'm the most hard done by. I'm the most traumatized. I'm the most ill. And actually what that tends to do is it tends to elicit lots and lots of care from other people, lots and lots of attention from other people. Of course, people actually burn out and get quite resentful of you, which of course reinforces I'm the biggest victim and no one actually cares about me. So that's another, it's a really interesting pattern that I think is beginning to get more talked about and interesting proportionately. The grandiose narcissists, proportionately more of them are men. 
Whereas with the more covert vulnerable narcissism, proportionally between men and women, it's about 50-50 split. And there's another form that I've heard inklings of, I haven't seen covered so much, called communal narcissism, which is someone who's getting that kind of sense of specialness from, I am the best person in the room. I'm the most moral person in the room. I'm the most generous and giving person in the room. And it's your kind of charitable work. Look at all the charities I support. Look at all the good things I've done. It's that person on the PTA who does everything, but has to be seen to be doing everything and has to let you know how little you do in comparison to them and how grateful you should be for all the work that they put in. So that's another form of it that I think we're kind of talking about. Then at the other end of the spectrum are the people who don't have enough narcissism. I don't see myself as special. I don't see myself as important. I don't see myself as as capable of putting myself out there. Um, I'd rather not share my own voice with people because I don't really want to be seen and heard. And that for some of them, it can be even a fear of becoming or seeming narcissistic. So many of the people I work with who have had parents and grown up in families where they've had caregivers who are extremely punitive towards them, who shut them down. Don't You can't fail because it would make us look bad. And they're very pushy parents. There's often a lot of success in the family, but the child feels under so, so much pressure to perform and achieve. It often goes along with OCD and eating disorders as well, because I've got to be so perfect. I've got to present this kind of image. And perfectionism, I think, can sometimes be a form of echoism, that they, they really struggle to put themselves forward. They struggle to ever feel good enough. Even minor critical feedback becomes, I'm destroyed. Or yes, I'm right. It confirms how I see myself. It's not quite so the narcissistic person's like, going to blow up in response to critical feedback and be dismissive or derogatory or kind of put the person down to kind of defend themselves. It's kind of what the psychodynamic people would see as a narcissistic defense, whereas the more echoistic people, they're like, it's it's true, it's right, it's exactly what I am. And they're terrified of coming across as narcissistic. And I've even had patients who I've worked with where they'll say something and they'll say, I think I, I think I actually did really good at my job this week, or I'm really impressed with this thing that I've done. And then like, no, you must think I'm a narcissist now. Do you think, do you think I'm a narcissist? This is, this is, this is, this is what my mother does. This is what my ex-partner does. And I'm like, no, it's like, it's normal to want to be recognized and to be seen and to be celebrated for the work you do. What's different is that you're not having to put anyone else down as you get recognized yourself. So much of what you said there, <laughs> so many questions, but just, I think the first thing for listeners is just knowing that, you know, narcissism as a concept doesn't necessarily have to equate with negative connotations. So fear of healthy narcissism can actually be a good thing by the sounds of it, but that maybe the media and movies you know, there's a portrayal, isn't there? And then from what you just said, then there are people perhaps who live in fear of being seen that way or that their behaviour is going to be seen in that way. And and I really like the idea of being able to, to help people understand the spectrum, that mm. actually people might be at different points along that. And obviously as psychologists as well, the role in background upbringing, yeah. how we see ourselves, how we judge our behaviour. For people that are listening they may be thinking, I recognise some of this stuff in others. 
And I know we were talking as well, weren't we, that we feel that the media are talking about this more and more now, and there are more experts talking about narcissism. How do you see narcissism as a concept? So if it's used outside of the clinical room, how do you feel about that? You know, I, I have really mixed feelings about it because I think there have been, particularly in highlighting narcissistic abuse or what's called narcissistic abuse. I mean, you know, what makes it narcissistic abuse? I mean, I would think it's much more about this is a relational abuse. This is someone who is antagonistic in their relationship, who isn't able to kind of have a reciprocal relationship where there's give and take. Yes. where there's a relationship of equals so someone who's always got to be above their partner someone who's always putting their partner down someone who isn't interested in what their partner has to say I think some of the language around narcissism and some of the discourse around that has really helped people recognize abusive relationships and almost given them permission to get out of them yes yeah and given them permission as well to cut the person off which is sometimes necessary it's not always necessary and I think then that that's where I get my flip side, because then you have this very simplistic idea that you have goodies and baddies. And for some people, there is a sense that the whole world is full of narcissists and I have got to seek them out, spot the red flags of narcissism so I can run. And I'm like, that's not the red flags of narcissism. It's the red flags of an abuser. It's the red flags of someone abusing you. So there's some good effects there. But I think where I kind of fall into more sort of questioning is like, well, actually relate people no one is one thing and yes there is that spectrum and we all probably have a tendency to be somewhere on either side of that spectrum and hopefully close to the middle but where you but we can move up and down it and we're not one thing you know if someone leaves me a really insulting comment on my youtube video yeah i might be like yeah narcissist obviously a narcissist saying nasty things about my youtube video you know it's not true and i might kind of get a little bit grandiose or defensive equally if i'm in a different mood i might be like oh no i shouldn't be putting myself out on youtube i don't know what i'm talking about i'm such a fraud which is obviously not true i've got extra i've got expertise perfectly reasonable to be putting materials out on youtube but you can veer around those kind of that spectrum. You can become a little more echoey. You can become a little more narcissistic depending on your mood, depending on what else is going on, depending on the situation that you're in. And, you know, people are not one thing and there's more options than cutting someone out of your life. For some people who are quite on the healthy end of the narcissistic spectrum, but tipping into the grandiose end on occasion, sometimes with the right people, who are maybe a little bit more robust and able to hold them to account and not to kind of join the drama, they can step up to the mark when they're challenged a little bit. It's possible to change the way you relate and for them to change the way they relate. And that, that I think there's scope for flexibility. And I've certainly worked with couples where one or other of the couple has some narcissistic tendencies. And these are not couples where there's a history of abuse. There might be a history of someone having bad temper or being a bit critical, but it's not tipping into the level of persistent, emotional, degrading abuse. Where actually, if you help the other, if you help both people, if you help the more grandiose person come down a little bit, but you also help the more timid person come up a little bit, that can be quite helpful. 
and there's, there's another psychologist, and I quite like some of what he says, Terry Rail, and he'll talk about actually what you really need to do is help people stand up to each other in love. So it's not, you are such an evil narcissist. It might be like, honey, I love you very much and our family loves you very much, but you are spending all of your time dealing doing this entrepreneurial stuff, which is wonderful and amazing, but we're here too and we miss you and we need you to come and spend time with us because what's happening is we're feeling like we're not special and we're not important to you and that's quite neglectful. And we also know that's not what you want. And so it's like, it's learning to kind of communicate from in a way that's quite invitational. But to do that, you have to kind of have enough kind of inner strength. You have to be quite sturdy in order to do that. And sometimes that's possible. Sometimes it's not so possible. And other times it's much more about boundary setting and holding firm lines, particularly when couples have split up. Or sometimes where there's a very narcissistic parent I certainly have quite a few people I've worked with where their parents' narcissistic tendencies come out very strongly when they're drunk. And I'll say, okay, then here's the deal. I'm going to teach you how to set really good boundaries. And obviously this comes after lots of work on helping people with their self-esteem, helping people kind of process any trauma that they've been through, helping build themselves up so they do feel a bit more sturdy and strong in themselves and sometimes practicing in other relationships first. But I'm like, okay, so when you're at that point, then we're going to come as this sturdy, strong adult to your father, your mother, whoever it may be. And you're going to say, dad, I love you. And our relationship is really, really important to me. And I know it's also really, really important to you. But when you drink, it ends in an, it ends in an argument and it ends in really bad feeling. So I am just not up for that anymore. So I'm going to need you not to drink when I'm in there. And if you do, and if the dad then says, well, I'm going to drink, I'll do it. I like, absolutely. You can do whatever you like and I'm going to be going home. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can, yes, there may still be that bloom and bluster and the dad will drink. It's like, oh, you go, you, do, you think you can tell me what to do in my own house? How can you say such a thing? No, I didn't say that. You can do whatever you like in your own house, but I don't have to be there. It doesn't have to mean I'm cutting off my relationship with you entirely. So I think it's kind of like you have to look at the whole picture and weigh things up. And I think for some people, there's somewhere in the middle between cutting someone off entirely and total reconciliation, which are not the extremes are not always needed, if that makes sense. I'm just wondering if that last example might fit into what you were saying before, that for some, maybe having boundaries put in might be seen as And therefore there's that anger, there's that reaction. What I think is really interesting for our listeners and for myself just listening, I'm just absolutely fascinated by this, is looking at that, you know, separating the behaviour out from the person. So I guess one of the things I struggle with in media and movies is that um, narcissism can often be portrayed as an absolute this is how the person is they're not going to change and today perhaps what we're doing is just demystifying that a bit in terms of helping people learn a little bit more about 
kind of flexibility, someone's ability to appraise, regulate their behaviour. So I have a background in um, disability and behaviourism. So, you know, looking at how often and how able people are to kind of self-regulate, to catch themselves, look at behaviour patterns, all of those. That's part of what we do as psychologists, isn't it? Is it, If there's someone listening to this podcast today, because particularly in terms of relationships then, if someone's thinking, hang on, some of this sounds familiar what might make the difference? There might not be one specific answer, but familiar as in I am a narcissist, or familiar as in I think my parent or partner or someone close to me is a narcissist. Someone is listening today who says, "Hang on, this sounds familiar." In terms of someone I'm in a relationship with, or in a friendship with, or within their family, what can help people start to understand a bit more about whether this behavior is dangerous or the relationship might be risky you know when they might need to put things in place to keep themselves safe rather than working on it as you say working with it that is you know what I would say is just take the word narcissism out of the picture because you don't need to know where this person is on the spectrum you don't need you know there are narcissism questionnaires you don't need them to fill one out what you need to know is what their behavior is and how it affects you. So if there's physical violence, yep. clearly you're in danger. You need to get the police involved, okay? If there's coercive control, which may not sort of be, there may not be physical violence there, but someone is controlling your finances. Someone is controlling who you can see, where you can go and what you can do. That, that's very, very concerning because those relationships also can be, I mean, at the extreme end, those are the relationships that lead up to a homicide when the person tries to leave. And so often you will get, when you try to leave that relationship, that's when the violence comes. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not necessarily something that will be really appreciated by the police. And sometimes if you don't have very clear evidence, it's not a lot the police can do, but it's definitely something that you need to get advice from. Certainly let the police know that you're concerned and there's charities, um, kind of women's aid, victim's aid, um, where you can get some advice and support with that. Um, so th those are the things that would concern me, but also thinking about what is okay and not okay with you. And it's like, it's not necessarily this person is a physical danger to me and I'm going to end up in a terrible situation. I'm going to end up murdered or I'm going to end up physically attacked. But what is, what is and isn't okay with me? And that can vary. It doesn't have to be, someone might be okay with their friends being 15 minutes late all the time. Like that really might not bother some people, but if it bothers you, um, then it's okay if you want to say that to your friend. It's okay if you make that a deal breaker in a friendship. Those are your boundaries for you to kind of figure out for yourself um, and not to, you know, not to think that you have got to accommodate everyone else all the time. You know, there's give and take. And you can also, you know, people will ask themselves, am I being too rigid? And I mean, that's okay. I mean, you can think about that. Would you, would you think if someone else was in the, this situation, would you think they were being overly rigid? It's often a really helpful tool yeah. psychology, isn't it? The kind of perspective taking. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? When we kind of think about narcissism then, in terms of, you know, that friend that might be continually late, that that might translate to someone who their own self-importance is put ahead of being on time or is that something you see 
some of the people that you work with, you know, it's because it's these everyday examples. That Someone being work. late all the time could be a sign that they don't see other people as other people's time as important or other people's time as valuable. And so they feel quite entitled to be late because, you know, screw you, you can't wait for me, right? That could be a kind <laughs> of form of narcissistic behavior. It could equally be someone who's quite disorganized um, and a bit scatty, which is not intentionally seeking to um, take your time from you and leave you feeling like you're not important enough to them. I mean, one of the ways to tell us what the reaction is when you say, actually, I'm a bit upset that you're late because I've been waiting for a while. It's their reaction. Yeah. don't you realize how important my job is? You know, I can't just drop everything to come to you. I mean, can't you just wait for 10 minutes? I mean, what's it to you? Yes. <laughs> Versus, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm just so disorganized. So again, that reaction. So sometimes again, putting in those boundaries of being assertive and making a comment, something about that reaction might help you start to put pieces yeah. together. Um, so I think that's one of the things that unless you're a psychologist, it's kind of understanding how this might present in everyday relationships and everyday situations. I was really interested, we were talking about um, coercive control, because this is something that's talked about more and more in kind of public forums and in the media now. What might coercive control look like? There is quite a distinctive pattern to it. There's a book, In Control, by Jane Monkton Smith, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder. And she was a homicide detective. And then went and did a PhD in, I think, a PhD in forensic psychology. But she has gone through cases where she's tracked back the time timeline. Um, now, these are the extreme cases. I'm not sure. I'm not saying that anyone who is controlling is going to end up in a in a homicide situation. So the her eight stages that she outlines is it starts with she talks about the pre relationship history. How has this person been in other relationships? Because you'll often find there's some history there of violence or they've made someone else feel very intimidated. And then there is, also in those very early stages, sometimes you'll find that other people are saying, don't get involved with that person. Avoid that person. So this external influence. This is this is not good for you. And but people will be quite dismissive of that. Oh, he's not like that with me. It's different for me. And this is where you're getting into what is often called narcissistic abuse. And I I almost wish the word narcissistic wasn't in there to take it out. It's abuse. That's what matters. Then the early relationships, and this was again, she was exploring, she was actually interviewing the people who committed the homicides after the event. Yes. and the early stages of the relationship that they described and that people's family and relatives described, they were really sped up, they were really fast, and they were often big early declarations of love. And if you translate that into what the kind of narcissistic languages, people call it love bombing, where it's so sped up, this is the most special, spectacular relationship, and then the person becomes very possessive and jealous not wanting you to spend time with other people, not wanting you to pursue your own ambitions, your own life goals, the things that matter to you are seen as less important than the relationship. 
And I think that's also where people can kind of at an early stage start, start to spot signs. Is this a healthy relationship or not such a healthy relationship? Does this person want and supports and celebrate the things that matter to me? And they don't have to like the things that matter to you. When I got together with my partner, I was really into yoga, um, which stopped because I had a child. But he was completely supportive and happy for me to go off and do my yoga classes and go to yoga retreats. I was very clear I'm never coming with you. It's not my thing. That's <laughs> absolutely fine. And likewise, he's really into Formula One, right? I'm perfectly happy to support his interest in Formula One. I take our kid, I go out for the day and he can watch it on the TV. I don't want to hear it because I really don't like the noise. So again, that's not being controlling. It's being supportive of someone else's interests without diminishing them or degrading them, particularly where it's an interest that isn't shared. So that difference between yeah. behaviour, which might be carving that wedge between you and the things that you like and yeah. the people of these interests, yeah. and even work. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's looking because it's the behavioural science. And say, well, there's a lot out there with narcissism. There's a lot out there. The word toxicity is used a lot, gaslighting, coercive relationships. But quite often I don't think enough's done to try and explain what it might start to look like. Also, you know, for perhaps people who are supporting that person because they might spot some of these things. Unfortunately, what tends to happen, it tends to go in one of the kind of polar opposite directions. On the one hand, it can go that everyone else is going... What, what are you doing? Yes. This person's awful. This person's terrible. Um, this person has cheated on you 10 times already. Why do you imagine it's going to be different this time? Oh, well, he's in therapy now. Yeah, and? And? And what I'll often say as well, when I've worked with people who've had that real betrayal trauma, and they're like, well, now he's in therapy and he might change. And I'll say he might, you know. That doesn't mean you need to stay. And that doesn't mean it's going to be good for you to stay. You need to evaluate that quite separately. Because sometimes people are really holding on to that early fantasy that's developed. And of course, narcissism, it's narcissist gazing in the pool. It's all about the fantasy. So I always be asking, are you thinking about reality? Is this relationship good as it is now? Good enough? Doesn't have to be perfect. Is it good enough now? Or are you caught up in a fantasy about what an amazing, spectacular person this is that is not the reality? Bringing it back to that, what do you want? It's so interesting, isn't it? I wonder whether people can get a little bit caught up in the person changing and them doing the work, but perhaps not actually taking that time to check in with what they want, what's okay. As you say, knowing that difference, dropping the term narcissism and actually looking at, is this relationship abusive? And that say, it doesn't have to be physical, emotional abuse, mm-hmm. is it? good for you and yeah yeah and you know it doesn't even have to be you know another level it can also be even where there's not abuse going on it doesn't mean you're a good match you know you may have different values you may have different priorities (laughs) and deciding to part company can be perfectly okay thing to do I think it doesn't have to involve calling anyone a narcissist yes absolutely so I'm going to say as well another kind of you know is there guidance, for example, if you are in a relationship somewhere where you're noticing these things where, you know, is it that somebody needs to get a diagnosis or needs to be called that? Is there guidance around how to navigate? These no, <laughs> no. And, you know, the other thing, of course, is that you can't diagnose someone as being an asshole. You know, that's not a diagnosis. And, it, and this is a thing that 
you know, where I, I kind of wonder like where the kind of diagnostic system sort of falls down a little bit around these kind of issues where narcissistic yeah. personality disorder to be diagnosed with any disorder, any psychiatric disorder, you've got to be impaired and you've got to be suffering. Well, very often the person who's the kind of classic narcissistic person who's very grandiose, who's quite interpersonally exploitative, who may tick many of those boxes on the diagnostic criteria, they may not feel like they're suffering at all. They may not be impaired. It may be working for them very well. They may be a world leader. I'm sure we can all think of names that spring to mind. Okay, yes, I'm sure most people listen. <laughs> Can you make a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder? Well, no, because they're not sitting in front of you and you're not assessing them. And unless you've got the kind of qualifications to make that diagnosis, you can't make that diagnosis. But what you can say is this is the impact this person has on me and that's not okay with me. Which I think that's the big takeaway from today for me is that helping people turn it back on themselves learning and spotting signs of things that aren't okay in relationships that aren't okay for you that might put you at risk even and that could be physical risk but also just emotionally at risk in terms of the long-term effects of somebody chipping away at your likes your interests things that perhaps make you who you are that are good for your mental health stability wise if someone's listening to this podcast and thinking gosh I can see that either in my own relationship or someone else's. Is there any guidance on what they can do? Particularly, I'm thinking people who might think, this is my friend and they're in that relationship, the people who, as you say, might spot it. Because I know sometimes it could be tricky to bring that up with people. Should they be bringing it up with people? Should they? Oh, that, this, it's really tricky because if you bring it up, you'll often provoke the defensiveness. Like, um, yeah, yeah. I've got to defend my relationship. I don't want, and the more someone's put into a relationship, the more kind of frightened they are to admit this isn't going well. And there can be a lot of shame around yes. it. Um, the things that I would suggest doing would be like, don't go, look, clearly your boyfriend's a narcissist. <laughs> I've got this article. <laughs> you should read it. Yeah, that's not helpful. Um, don't do these things, even if we're not sure what the absolute right thing is to do. Um, but one of the things that can be very helpful is to remember narcissistic people, the kind of narcissistic behavior of gaslighting, which is essentially denying reality. Um, some, some people talk about it's denying your reality. And I'm like, no, that's actually too subjective. It's because people can have different memories of events, different recollections. They can have a different perspective. That's fine. Um, gaslighting isn't someone disagreeing with you. It's someone denying the truth and reality so it's someone saying i never said i'd meet you at 7 p.m when they did say they'd meet you at 7 p.m and it was very clear that's what was meant or um you know or, or they'll say to you well i don't think you really feel that angry at me right now and i think maybe your depression is playing up i think you think that way because you're depressed or i think you think that way because you haven't eaten yet today have a snack which is just really diminishing someone's reality, yeah. someone's experience, someone's perspective. And it's not the same as someone saying, well, 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 look, we're all stressed and upset. Let's take a moment and come back to this when we both feel a bit calmer. That would be a good, healthy thing to do in a relationship. It's literally, you only think that way because you're depressed, you're anxious, you have some kind of neurodivergence, you, have, you haven't eaten today, you're too hot, 
those are the kind of really dismissing someone's perspective as having any value at all. Um, if you see things like that happening, something that can be really helpful is for the person to realize someone else has clocked it and that they're not crazy. So it might be saying to them when they're on their own, gently, are you okay? Because they couldn't help but notice there seemed to be some tension. Or I really didn't like how your partner spoke to you and made me feel a bit uncomfortable. I just want to check, are you okay? Yeah. You know, or you, you probably feel a bit embarrassed with me mentioning this, but this is what I've seen. And, and I would hate that you would feel embarrassed or ashamed. People do feel embarrassed and ashamed. And that's what drives them to cover it up. I'm here if you want to talk. And I think when people do talk to people, the, the key is not to try to convince them to leave. Often you're thinking, you've got to leave, you've got to leave, get out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is where it's really abusive um, behaviors would be actually really affirming. Look, you make good judgments. You're very capable as a person. Drawing on things you've seen in the past. These are the things I've noticed you've do- done in the past, the things that you're good at. Um, you're very capable of having good relationships. You you can make good judgments for yourself. Let's sit down and explore this. And I think sometimes the decision to leave is often the end of a long, long process of really thinking those things through. And sometimes there's a tipping point for people. Um, the tipping point can be physical violence. So when you've had a long period of emotional abuse and suddenly it turns physical, that's when people are like, no, this really is. I'm, I'm getting out. Um, although sometimes people will stay even if there's physical violence going on too. So, But people have a tipping point and I think there's also a long, long process. And sometimes people are also weighing things up like, what will the impact of leaving this relationship have on me? And that can be significant because you can get post-relationship abuse. I mean, the trouble that can happen in divorce courts when someone just decides that they're going to get antagonistic and litigious. There's there's so much there. And sometimes people, I think, are weighing up, should I do this? What's the best thing for my children and how I will put them through this? Or if we got divorced and my kids had to spend time with this other person on their own, I would be worried about their safety, for example but it may not currently reach the threshold where you could get uh, child protection services involved. It's really, really challenging. I almost have you on for another whole episode. (laughs) It is a subject we can just do. It's a whole episode in itself. I can give you names of divorce lawyers. (laughs) I always ask my guests for kind of a signature move, as I call it, kind of if you had one piece, one adversity takeaway, what would that be? I think one of the most, in my work, particularly when I'm working with people who've been on the receiving end of abuse, is I think so much is actually about not focusing on the abusive person and what's wrong with them. It's learning how to turn your attention towards yourself and how to take care of yourself and how to build yourself up without blaming yourself for the situation that you've ended up in. That's what's come across most clearly to me today. Now, people are going to want more of you. Where can they find you? <laughs> Where's the best so, place? Probably you? the best place at the moment is YouTube. So yep. I have a very growing YouTube channel. I'm also on Instagram and TikTok, but I'm not as active on there. Um, YouTube's probably the biggest platform for me. And I'm also about to launch some online groups 
for people who have survived abusive relationships. Um, I call it narcissistic abuse because that is what everyone is calling it at the moment, but it's really any form of abuse. And at this point, the group is really going to focus a lot on nurturing and softening and just kind of rebuilding yourself, those kind of early stages of recovery. And what I hope to do is expand it into helping people get strong and assertive and work on assertiveness skills and then also work on how do you form healthy relationships and foster healthy relationships. So that's the long term plan for me. But so at the moment I'm on YouTube and I can also send you my website details. They'll be on the show notes, presumably. Yes, so they'll all be on the show notes, but I'll also put them in my social media as well because I know people need to hear more of you. And hopefully you'll come back again. I've just been in awe today, just absorbing so, so much. Love Thank you. Just helping people that kind of first step and just understanding narcissism, trying to break it down into behaviours, things we can see, but then also we've just begun those little small steps in what people can do they notice that in their own relationships and in other people so thank you so much for coming on today as an episode it's really lovely again you're one of these people that you know i converse with online but i haven't met so it's nice to meet you and to you it's it's really really fun it's been a real treat have you on thank you so much thank you thank you so much for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you step at a time.